I fell into the hands of a corrupt detective. I was naive enough to believe that I would be able to just present all of my proof of actual innocence, that they would investigate adequately, and so that I wouldn't be going to prison because I was a good person, I hadn't done anything wrong. In the back of your mind, you say, well, when we go to a hearing or we go to court, the truth will come out. The prosecution from day one knew I was innocent and let false testimony go uncorrected from the lower courts all the way up to the United States Supreme Court. You have someone with a badge with ultimate and, and really, in that moment, unchecked authority. Don't presume that people are guilty when you see them on TV because it may just be a dirty DA that is trying to rise upward. This is Wrongful Conviction. Martha Stewart, the original influencer. When I think about anything, I think about the way that she did it first. The media mogul. Five to six years ahead, she saw what was coming. The prisoner, the rise, the fall, and the reinvention of an American icon. Once Martha paved the road, everybody else pretty much copied her. A CNN original series, The Many Lives of Martha Stewart, now streaming on Max. Billie Eilish and Phineas O'Connell, they're with us today on Crew Call. I'm your host, Anthony D'Alessandro. Billie's vocals, it was automatic art. You know, I had to like choose a more challenging route than just like da-da-da-da. You know what I'm saying? Like it could have been like easier. And a lot of people have asked me like, how did you choose to have it be so soft and like so simple? And what else was it going to like? That's what the song wanted. Thanks for listening to this episode of the Crew Call podcast on Deadline. Are you looking to step up to a 4K smart TV? One that gives you unparalleled clarity and picture resolution? Then we've got good news for you. Because the Vizio 65-inch V-Series 4K smart TV is now just 348 With all your favorite apps built in, you can stream straight out of the box. You can even sing along to all your favorite music and radio on the iHeartRadio app. Looking for a smaller or bigger screen? Vizio offers unbeatable prices on all V-Series 4K smart TVs. Head to Walmart.com today and score the 4K TV you've been waiting for. Hey, Sarah, I love that spring break vlog you posted on Zigazoo. OMG, you watched it? Yeah, it was so cool. I think you're so talented. Social media is only positive with Zigazoo, the world's largest and safest social media network for kids. In Zigazoo, all community members are verified kids like yours, and all content is fully human-moderated. Try out Zigazoo this spring break. Download the Zigazoo app today. Welcome back to Wrongful Conviction with Jason Flom. Today, I have a very special guest, Keon Katibi, who's going to tell you a story that will... Well, it'll probably blow your mind, because it blows mine. Keon, welcome to the show. Thank you. Good to be here. So Keon, ironically, I guess you could say, is from Pleasantville, New York. And you grew up in sort of a nuclear family, sort of a normal childhood, pretty much? Yeah, there was five of us, all about a, a year, year and a half apart, and I'm, I'm the number two. And the crux of your story all revolves around a tragic incident that happened in a bar in Pleasantville called Lock, Stock, and Barrel in 1998. That's where it all started, yes. That's where it all started. Two people were stabbed in a fight in this bar. And at the time that it happened, you were in the police station, which is just sort of like, I mean, you can't have much of a better alibi than that that was hidden, but there's video that exists that proves that you were in the police station at the time of the stabbing, and yet they managed to convict you anyway. So let's go back to that fateful day, or that fateful night, I should right. say, when you were in that bar. What was going on? How did this fight happen? How did you end up going to the police station? I mean, it's all so nuts. Okay, yeah, that's that's probably a good place to start. Well, I was inside of the bar, Lock, Stock, and Barrel, in the village of Pleasantville, Westchester County, New York. And I'd just gotten there. I think I was there maybe under 10 minutes. And there was a scuffle. There was, a, I guess, a group of uh, young folks. And everybody in there was in their 20s, most likely, college bar. 
And there was a scuffle, and I got pushed on the back and kind of like bumped. And I turned around, and somebody grabbed me by the collar. A little shorter than me, a stocky guy. And he grabbed me by the collar and starts lifting me up. And I put my hand to push him away. He's assaulting me, or harassing me at the very least. And at that time, uh, I, the bouncer was standing at the door, and he turned around. He saw some kind of scuffle. Uh, I'm not sure exactly what was going on. I was just focusing on the guy who had his arm around my collar and squeezing my shirt. That's reasonable. <laughs> you know. And the bouncer grabbed my shoulder and says, hey, you got to get out of here. So I left, you know, I, I obliged. I, I'm not going to sit there and argue, hey, I deserve to stay, I don't, you know. So I, I walk out and the bouncer says, listen, I know you weren't involved, but uh, you were the closest guy to me and I just had to get a grip on the situation. So I left. I went to 7-Eleven store to get some coffee. And, you know, at this time in my head, I'm thinking, well, all my friends are inside. I came with them. At this time, I was living in uh, Yonkers, New York, um, although I'm from Pleasantville. And I was thinking, wow, how do I get home? Uh, do I go tell my friends? And, you know, we're 1998. Everybody doesn't have a cell phone. No, you don't have an Uber, nothing like that, yeah, right? Yeah, that, that's just not going on. So, you know, maybe a few people at that time, if I recall correctly, had what they called pagers. Right. Yeah. <laughs> so I'm thinking, what do I do? So I start walking back toward the bar and saying, maybe I can see someone outside, make sure everyone, my friends knew I, at least I was kicked out and that I'm going home or maybe they're leaving too soon. I'll get a ride. Right. Catch a ride. Yeah. So I start walking back to the bar and um, there's a huge parking lot on one of the sides of the lock, stock and barrel bar or pub, whatever you call it. And then I see a group there. There's altercation and there's yelling and screaming. But I, I, I walk a little closer because I, you know, I didn't think it involved me and didn't at that time. It's also the way back to the bar that I have to go. So I, I get a little closer and it seems these guys are just like arguing and screaming with each other, some some dumb stuff. In my mind, I'm like, oh, there's a couple drunk folks out here arguing, you know, has nothing to do with me. And I go to walk past them and one of the guys points at me and says, hey, there's the guy from, from the bar. In my head, I'm just like, oh, my God. And I'm thinking, is that one of the guys who had me by the collar or one of his friends? I'm like, geez, it wasn't enough that I just got kicked out of the bar. Now now, now they're like, hey, that's him. Like, So um, I kind of steer around the group to get to the sidewalk because I don't want anything to do with that. And the guy's still yelling, and it looks like he wanted to come after me or hit the tone of his voice. So, you know, and I'm a small guy. You know, at that time, I think I weighed like 145 pounds at, you know, 5'9". So that's probably as light as you can get. You know, I was like, you know, spaghetti, my arms and legs and everything. And, you know, these guys are some – they were both actually football players. So it's very intimidating for me. Yeah, and you've just been you know? assaulted once already. It's like this is not a great night so far. Well, yeah, exactly. exactly. But it's about to get a lot worse. Uh, it's about to get a lot worse. In fact, that was the beginning of the next 10 years of uh, of downward spiral, you know, until the light. So, till the hard-fought light, that is. So, I managed to get past them. And past them, right uh, across the street is the train station. I walk past them. I said, I'm out of here. I'm going to the train station. And it's this downstairs in Pleasantville. You walk downstairs. It's maybe like 30 steps. And, um, you know, it's a big carve out. And it's kind of like, you know, a dip in the ground. So it's like a big echo chamber right there because there's, you know, concrete walls all around you. And this down in this pit in the middle of Pleasantville. And I start hearing all this yelling and screaming from the bar. And it's just echoing down there. And I'm just thinking, what what is going on there? So I get I get nervous a little because, one, I was just kicked out of the bar. Two, the guys were saying, hey, there's that guy. So I'm like, you know, I just didn't feel safe. Like, what happens if one of them in their drunken stupor says, hey, I saw that guy go down the train station steps. Let's go find him, you know. And this, this is what's going through my mind, at least, you know. It's logical. I think reasonable. it was – I thought it was reasonable to feel a little scared, you know. I'm not a fighter I'm, and I'm not – wasn't that big a person. So I come back up the steps of the train station and I just kind of position myself right next to the police station door, which is on the other side of the train station. And uh, when I hear the train coming, 
I'll walk down and grab the train. So I'm, I'm laughing, but it's like actually. All of I this guess, sounds very rational to me. Actually, you know, you're. I mean, that's you're going to go to the police station for protection. At the time, I thought it was too, but you know, in hindsight, I see that every step I made I was was apparently, a, you know, a step toward the fatal results which well, which occurred, and you couldn't have predicted that. So you go to the police station. Now it's about. Well, we actually know because there's there's timestamps and stuff, right? We know you went to the police station at one twelve in the morning, right? And then yes. and then what happened? But I was outside waiting to listen to the train to go back down, just for safety reasons. All of a sudden, I hear tires screeching, and I'm like, "What's that?" And I'm thinking, "Is that related to the fight? Did the folks get into a car or whatever? Uh, someone get beat up? Are they driving around looking for people? Is this going to be one of those like a?" Uh, Brawls between villages, uh, you know, because there's rivalries in in some of these towns, like football rivalries or whatever, Hawthorne, Westlake. And I was thinking, uh, maybe something like that's going on. I'm outside and I hear these tires screeches. And all of a sudden I hear these some, it was women's voices. "Ah, ah," And it sounded like they were screaming like a horror film or something like that. My heart just jumped out of me at that time. And I ran into the police station and... There was a glass wall there in the desk officer, and she's like, can I help you? And I was like, yeah, well, listen, I was just coming from down the road from, you know, the 7-Eleven, walking back past the lock, stock, and barrel. And um, there was some guys that were after me, and I, I'm a little intimidated to wait down here by the train station alone. And I, I just worried that they might come and find me and, I guess, fight me. That's what's going through my mind, at least. I asked if I could get a ride to a police station next door because in Westchester, the uh, train stations are probably like a mile apart, you know. And the officer said, "Uh, yeah, come here. Here's some water. Sure, I can give you a ride to the Hawthorne train station. No problem. Give me a second. And so I sat down. I'm I'm drinking the water. And now I feel safe. I feel like, you know, that's it. I, I did what I had to do to take care of myself, at least for that moment. I'll be able to get a ride to the train station go home and and that'll be that about a i guess less than a minute around around that time goes by and the officer comes back around to me and says hey listen i can give you a ride but i've got to go run and answer this call and i don't know what time i'm coming back so i can give you a ride but you have to wait and i i have no idea when i'm coming back so i said okay well thanks and then he just like gunned it out the door so I'm sitting there, and I finish my water, and I'm like, okay, well, I guess there goes my ride, and I do have to get home. So I get up, and I leave. And, you know, eventually I find my way home that night. And I thought that was the end of it. Well, when did you find out what actually happened that night at the bar? Because it, it turned out to be a lot more than what you thought, right? A couple of people were stabbed. Well, Pleasantville is a small town. In Pleasantville, everybody's talking about it the next day. Okay, so yeah, so the word gets around. You find out that there were a couple of people stabbed in the bar. As it turns out, they were so drunk that they didn't even realize they had been stabbed until they came out. But one guy was in the hospital for a couple of weeks. Yeah. So it was a pretty pretty serious wound. Nobody died. And meanwhile, the cops are trying to figure out who did it, right? Exactly. And how the hell did they land on you when you were in the police station at the time of the stabbing? Let's talk about this. How did you end up getting convicted? Because most of the witnesses said you weren't there. Well, I guess, you know, it's kind of torturous to explain how we got from A to B, but I'll, I'll, I'll give it my best shot. So there was about two weeks that went by. In the interim, I'm just getting all these rumors, you know, and friends are talking about folks getting stabbed, this and that. The victims were found actually down the block uh, in front of the Bank of New York and another bar, you know, but I kind of put some things together and say, oh, that probably had something to do with the altercation that was at Lock, Stock, and Barrel. And uh, on January 28th, 1998, I'm in Pleasantville down by the pizzeria. You know, my mom still lived there at the time as well as brothers and sisters. And uh, Detective, Detective Maisie of the Pleasantville Police Department, I guess he catches wind that I'm there, you know, and I'm actually on the same block as the police department. And out of the blue, he approaches me. And, you know, he's a real imposing guy. He probably weighed 
at least 200 pounds, and I think he's close to six feet. And he approaches me, and he says, hey, hey, Keon, come here, you know. And I walk over to him, and he, he says, you come with me right now. You talk to me what happened a couple weeks ago. And I said, well, tell me what you're talking about. I don't know. He goes on about Saturday night, this and that. I told him, well, listen, I'm not coming with you right now, but here's my card. If you want to, you know, calm down and we'll make an appointment, I'll come in and, and speak with you. But I have other things to do right now. You know, I have a job. I work evenings as a waiter. And he got so pissed off, like the anger in his face, it was it, it, it was just ridiculous. And he turns red and he says, you don't want to talk to me? Then, all right, F you. And he jams his face finger into my nose and it like stung me and I'm, I'm just in shock right there and I'm standing there frozen and I don't know what to do like what's next you know is he gonna like drag me away is he gonna like take me into a van and I don't, I don't know all this stuff I'm like you know I'm at a loss and I'm helpless and he walks away I stand there for a minute and then I walk away and I go home. I, I go to work. I, I, my day goes on. I, I contemplate calling him and making an appointment, uh, but, I'm, uh, but I'm not sure. I don't, I don't want to go and face more of that hostility. That abuse, yeah. That's for sure. Then um, I think about two weeks go by, and um, a couple of my friends call me up or, or tell me. I don't recall exactly when I – but when I see them or hear from them, they say, hey, the police are out with a warrant for your arrest. And I said, are you kidding me? And they're like, yeah, yeah, they came, they showed me the warrant, and they said they're looking for you. And I said, Did oh. you immediately think that it was for the stabbings, or did you think, like, what the hell could they possibly be looking for me for? Well, that's the only thing I could put my finger on. It's not like I was out there doing all sorts of stuff where they— You weren't like a master criminal cops. or anything? <laughs> no. Okay so, okay, so now they've got this warrant for your arrest. Now what happens? Well, I, I call a lawyer, and I tell them a story. I say, you know, my friend's— telling me there's a warrant for my arrest and the lawyer's like well did you see it and I was like well no because you know then I probably would have been arrested by the time I saw it but I'd like to know how do we handle this you know do I turn myself in do we call them do they come pick me up and so we arranged um a date for me to turn myself in on the warrant so that's what we did and I, I think it was February 4th of 1998 I went and turned myself in I was I was arrested I was held in um county jail for about a week without bail until I had a felony hearing in Pleasantville. I went to the felony hearing. There was two victims. One of the victims is testifying about how he uh, thinks that I stabbed him, this and that. And I was held over for indictment. I was indicted. I went to trial and I was convicted. Of course, you know, there's a lot more in between to the story, but that that's uh, that's the timeline there. But both of the victims, it was Duffy and Boyer, right? Yes. And both Duffy and Boyer were heavily intoxicated at the time they were stabbed. They were so heavily intoxicated that they didn't even know they were stabbed until someone came along and lifted up their shirt and said, wait, how come there's all this blood, right? So, I mean, how drunk do you have to be to not know you were stabbed? Well, Boyer, according to his hospital record, he was, uh, his blood alcohol content, BAC, was greater than 03 and that's all it registered on on his blood test. And I think the way the hospital had it set up, if you're greater than 0.3, I mean, that was that was all they showed. You know, they'll show 0 0.08, 0 0.1, but uh, greater than 0.3 was was the max. They don't go higher. And that and that's a state where you can, um, according to the consensus, like you can black out, you lose consciousness, you potentially you could die from alcohol poisoning. Sure. At that level. Let's talk about that for a second. I, yeah. I think for drunk driving, the limit is 0 0.08, right? So when you're at 0.3, that means you're uh, about four times the legal limit for driving, and you're getting to the point where, yes, you can have acute alcohol poisoning and you can die. And it's interesting because at trial, neither one of them was able to identify you as the assailant, right? Yeah, I mean, nobody said that I had stabbed them or they saw me stab them, but they made conclusions that it must have been me that stabbed them and you know and that the jury was allowed to hear that and that and that they believed I stabbed them that was a real shame because I didn't have the evidence to counter or to show the jury why why did these victims believe that I stabbed them when in fact I didn't 
Well, we know now that there are a number of reasons. The interrogation was very suggestive in ways that we know lead to wrongful identifications in so many cases, right? The police uh, showed a photo lineup with you in it and showed it to the victims and told them that the actual perpetrator was probably at the scene. There's a number of things they did that are, that are at a minimum, bad police work. And I think that's one of the factors that happened in your case that led to you being identified as, as the assailant, even though you weren't even there. That's one of the main factors, yes. So you're at trial. How long did it take you to get to trial? It took a little over one year. So you were in jail the whole time? No, I actually bailed out. I was out on $5,000 bail. So before trial, I was out on bail. And during trial, I was, I guess, you know, lucky enough to to be out on bail. It's interesting that they set bail at $5,000, right? That would indicate to me that the judge who set the bail was not very concerned that you were going to be running around stabbing anybody. Because if they were, they certainly wouldn't set bail at 5000 I mean, that's almost like a misdemeanor type of bail. Yeah, well, when we went to the felony hearing, I think the judge saw that there was, you know, profound weaknesses in the case and set the bail at 5000 and I was released. Unfortunately, you know, the felony he- hearing occurred in February of 98, and the trial occurred in February of 99. So there was a whole year there to prepare and, you know, fix up the weaknesses. And I, I, I guess those are nice words to use because the real words I should use is they had a whole year to destroy evidence, to suppress evidence, to fabricate evidence, and to coerce these witnesses to testify against me. So by the time I went to trial, you know, it was pretty much guaranteed lights out. Yeah, I mean, it's pretty incredible when you think about, again, this is New York. You're a guy who's not the typical defendant. You know, you you hadn't really had uh, a lot of altercations with the police before. And yet they did things that are so beyond the pale, including not handing over a bloody shirt and hat that were found at the crime scene, right? I mean, and then eventually claiming that they were misplaced. I mean, misplaced, that's a nice word, right? Yeah, that was i that was just ridiculous. I mean, I have no words to explain their reasoning in doing that or, or how they explain why they did that. It's just, it's ridiculous. Not only did they withhold exculpatory evidence, including the videotape that they knew had a timestamp on it that would have placed you at the police station at the time that the crime was being committed, which is right there, case closed, done. That means they knew that you didn't do it, that they withheld that. They intimidated your friend Eric, right, who was in the bar. Yeah, well, I'd have to just say he was he was not my friend, but I did know who he was, yeah. He was an associate. I mean, he, he would have been a friend if he was a, a nicer person, but I just wouldn't call him a friend. Okay, so they intimidated an acquaintance of yours named Eric Freud into implicating you. And we know from the way the cop behaved towards you, actually assault, physically assaulting you yeah. on the street in front of the pizza place, we know that there's a lot of credibility to that claim. And then they also threatened the bouncer if he didn't implicate you, right? So they, I mean, I don't want to believe that police behave like that. I grew up and I still believe that, you know, listen, most, I think most police are good. I think as a society, we need police. I'm not one of these people who's like an anarchist or something. Like, right, right. And I always say I'm not soft on crime. I'm tough on injustice, right? I believe we need to have a system of laws. We need to have people in place, police, prosecutors. The whole system has to function because right. it has to keep society safe. Right. But when it's turned upside down, it's just, it's, it's so deeply disturbing to see what they can do, how they can grind somebody like you up. So, Keon, now that you are a practicing attorney, and we're going to get to that in a few minutes because okay. some of the stuff you're doing now is so fascinating. Looking back on your trial, do you feel that you were represented in an adequate manner? Well, I mean, I don't. I don't. And I hope I never represent someone myself as an attorney now the way I was represented at trial by my attorney then there was a lot of problems there with the defense at the same time I have to say to myself well how can a defense truly be effective if all the evidence is being withheld from the defense 
It's really hard. You know? So... Yeah, I mean, you didn't have much of a chance. You would have needed the Clarence Darrow or the modern-day version would be Barry Sheck right. representing you right. to give yourself a fighting chance. Absolutely. And that's clearly not what you had. You weren't a rich guy, right? Or you couldn't afford the dream team? Oh, I was on financial aid going to community college at that time, right. so, so I could you, hardly even afford it. To put it politely, you were fucked, right? By the oh, time yeah. you got to trial, it was already, it, it basically was a, a formality. They were, they were going to, they had you, they were going to get you, and that's exactly what they did. Witness the dawning of a new era in automotive luxury with a reveal unlike any other as Infinity presents a new chapter in luxury, the premiere of the all-new 2025 Infinity QX80. Join us March 20th live from the Edge at Hudson Yards in New York City, featuring an unforgettable performance by Grammy and Academy Award-winning singer, songwriter, and composer, John Batiste. The all-new Infiniti QX80 is unlike any luxury SUV you've ever seen. Smart enough to anticipate your needs, even before you do. Every line, curve, and detail was thoughtfully crafted, so everything for every passenger feels just right. Don't miss it. Mark your calendars and be the first to see it March 20th at 7 p.m. Eastern, only on iHeartRadio's YouTube channel. Save the date at new-qx80.com. 2025 QX80 coming this summer. Hey, Sarah, I loved that spring break vlog you posted on Zigazoo. OMG, you watched it? Yeah, it was edited so well. I think you're so talented. Social media interactions are only positive when you use Zigazoo. Zigazoo is the world's largest and safest social media network for kids. Your kids can upload their content and see what their friends are up to. With Zigazoo, they can create videos, enter to win prizes, and try out the latest dances and trends. There's no commenting, no text messaging, and everything is 100% human-moderated. Plus, all community members are real, verified kids just like yours. There are no bots, trolls, or AI. Because Zigazoo is about one thing and one thing only, and that is fun. Try out Zigazoo this spring break and let your kids share your vacation vlogs and best edits with their friends safely. Download the Zigazoo app today. That's Z-I-G-A-Z-O-O. As someone who lives for politics, when a major scandal unfolds... It was shocking. I have to know, what were they thinking? Backroom deals. Huge amounts of money. CIA secrets. Sets off a firestorm in Washington. Affairs. No way this guy's got a mistress. Corruption. I knew I was a dead man. Warning, it's even messier than you thought. United States of Scandal with Jake Tapper, Sunday at 9 on CNN. The national sales event is on at your Toyota dealer, making now the perfect time to get a great deal on a dependable new SUV, like an adventure-ready RAV4. Available with all-wheel drive, your new RAV4 is built for performance on any terrain, from the road to the trails. And with plenty of passenger and cargo space, plus available tech like wireless charging, you and your entire crew can stay connected. Or check out a stylish and comfortable Highlander with three spacious rows of seating for up to eight passengers. And with available features like the panoramic moon roof, you can sit back and enjoy the wide-open views with your whole family. Plus, both RAV4s and Highlanders are available in hybrid models. So no matter your style, you can drive efficiently and save on gas. So visit your local Toyota dealer and check out amazing national sales event deals on RAVs, Highlanders, and more when you visit buyatoyota.com. Toyota, let's go places. You get convicted and sentenced to what? Seven to 14 years in prison. I'm trying to imagine what was going through your mind when that happened. Well, like you had just said a few minutes ago, in your America, this doesn't happen. This type of behavior from police officers doesn't happen. And that's what I was thinking, too. Even after my arrest and during my trial, you know, and all I keep thinking is, you know, there's no way 
that the jury would convict me or this judge will allow this even to get to a verdict based on this evidence and I know I'm innocent and I feel like uh, you know that doesn't happen you don't get convicted of things you didn't do not in my America right no uh, and the last thing I think in my mind is that everyone would simply jump on board and push my head under the water that's the last thing I thought would happen and the whole time I was in prison I thought surely someone would come with a helping hand and see see the injustice that has occurred here but you know that that doesn't happen you know and and, and you're stuck always hoping for the next level when you're in prison at first it's oh uh, you know you get arrested I'll, I'll be released at the felony hearing. They'll see this was a mistake, you know, but that doesn't happen. And the jury will see and the judge will see and maybe even the prosecutor will see that I'm innocent. You know, these are actually kind of naive thoughts. Looking back, they were naive thoughts. I mean, they're, they're idealistic thoughts, yeah. right? You, you really can't ignore that oftentimes police and prosecutors have a motive to get a conviction, which doesn't always equate with justice. No, and that's the, the reasonable doubt standard is something that needs to be reinforced into everyone's head. There, you have to be guilty beyond a reasonable doubt. In your case, it was tons of reasonable doubt. Even though a huge percentage of the evidence and the most important evidence was withheld, there was still reasonable doubt. And you still had a story to tell that, that should have at least put some, one of two of the jurors in a position to say, I, I, can't, I can't reasonably convict this guy. Which prison did you get sent to? Well, initially, I'm in Westchester uh, County Jail almost almost for like a year there. It turns out that they, apparently they forgot me. That's what I was told. After I was convicted, my bail is revoked. I go to Westchester County uh, Jail and everybody um, I see coming in after pleading guilty or convicted, they're upstate within two weeks. And there I am eight, nine months later and I, I didn't know what was going on so I actually called my mom and I said can you call the jail and find out what's going on it's supposed to be out of here to go upstate not like I was like hey let's go upstate but in the county it's pretty rough conditions Westchester County Jail I mean basically don't get to see anybody or anything it's in no sunlight it's pretty tough so she called and she said well the state says they forgot you so they don't they didn't know you know whatever paperwork error so I think in July of 99, I shipped upstate to Downstate Correctional Facility, which is in Fishkill, New York, after my mom called and they figured out that I was lingering over there in the county jail for a better half of a year. And that tells you something about just how bad jails are, and I think it's important for people to realize that you don't see the sunlight. Thinking about that, how insane is it that you, an innocent man, is actually asking, can you please transfer me to a... Right. Was that a maximum security prison downstate? It was. Yeah, so yeah. you were transferred to a maximum security prison. So in prison, now you're you're in this. It even it sounds it just sounds scary, right? Downstairs, it just sounds like. Very, oh, it, it 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 was <laughs> prison in general was it was very very scary and intimidating. How did you survive in this environment? Well, the first thing I had to do was, I guess, observe what's going on and find out what what I want to be involved with. So when I went upstate, or even it started in the county jail, I realized that there's a lot of folks there in prison, in jail in general, who had or have drug problems. You know, and there's no doubt that they continue to use drugs while in prison. And there's another large group which tends to gamble all the time. Some of them, they'll talk to you. Without, you know, without strangling you or, or ripping stuff out your pocket, right? So, you know, as a young, skinny 22-year-old that I was, you know, and they'd say, they, they give some advice and they say, stay away from gambling and drugs and you're going to increase your chances of not getting a shank in the back. And I thought, you know, that really made sense. So I'm really not a gambler to begin with, you know, and the most I ever did back in high school was smoke some pot, so... I thought, hey, I'm good. You know, I wasn't the type of guy who had to uh, prove myself. You know, that's not what I was there for. I wasn't there to earn my stripes in prison. You know, I, I was there because for things I didn't do, you know. I was was not a big, bad dude. And uh, I think I, 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 um, I have ability to make people laugh. 
as well and feel comfortable around me. So a lot of folks, a lot of folks felt a closeness or ability to talk to me. And that includes, you know, some of the gang leaders, some of the old timers, you know, these are big time dudes in jail. They, they head up the gangs and, and, you know, I would talk with them and, and they seem to be more, you know, in control and calm, I guess, because of their you know, long experience. They were no longer going out doing wild things. Uh, those were the younger folks uh, in the prison, generally, who were like stabbing up people or, or doing crazy stuff for no reason. So I think I made, I guess you could say, friends or whatever with, with a few of them, and they respected me. And You think they knew that you were innocent? No. I, to be honest with you, that's probably the last thing you want to do going upstate because there are folks there they will pray people pray on any whiff of weakness any whiff of weakness and it's really intense like that and you just have to learn really quick what people interpret as weakness because you will instantly get preyed upon like for example i'm crossing my legs right here right no big deal no big deal. You look at it, you see anything? I didn't off even right notice here? until you pointed it right? out. Go up there as twenty-two years old, and you're crossing your legs. And in prison, the environment is—it's so homophobic. It's unreal. It's unreal. But that's the standard, and it's fully accepted. And and that's just the machismo, the male line there. It's so homophobic. You cross your legs, or you do anything that's considered not macho. And you're instantly labeled as weak or soft and or gay. And then you're preyed upon as someone who can be uh, made fun of or stolen from or a chump or a punk or whatever. So you really have to watch out for anything like that in the outside world, which you're just being yourself, you know, crossing my legs, whatever. I mean, I, I, I'm not gay, but it wouldn't matter. I'm just saying any any indication at the same time. You know, there's people that, that sniff out newcomers and they'll try to watch your body language, how you hold your shoulders. And if and if there's a piece of weakness, they'll come up and they'll try to be your friend or this or that. You know, might not find out for weeks later that they're actually preying on you, preying on your weakness to find out so that they can basically wrap you up in a corner someplace and demand your commissary. And I've seen this happen to so many people. It's rather sad. If that works out, then they go on to the next level of intimidation and they'll, they'll have people call their family at home and say, hey, can you send me some pack of cigarettes? Can you send me some money? I, I'm in trouble here. And that money will go to, you know, an extorter or someone else uh, under threat of rape or, or getting beat up. And, and, and then oftentimes, you know, it does lead to rape. But um, the person who, you know, who's victimizing there is, is just really a real intimidated person. It's all so terrifying, the whole idea of the eggshells you're walking on and having to learn a whole new twisted culture and programming, and it's got to stop. I mean, being sent to prison shouldn't mean being tortured. There should be some some dignity in this process, and that is, it's an affront to, should be a front to everybody's sensibility and everybody's sense of fairness. So, um, so here's where things get really nuts, Keon. On November 17th, 2007, during a dinner at your family's home, your dad was talking about how much he missed you and wished you were there and everything else. And then a crazy, crazy thing happened. And I don't know how easy this is for you to even talk about. But, I mean, do you want to tell what happened or you want me to do it? Go ahead and then I'll fill in the blanks. So having read the story, it was at that time that your brother, I think his name's pronounced Kayvon. Correct. Right. Your brother, Kayvon, began weeping at the dinner table and admitted that he, in fact, was the culprit. And I'm getting the chills as I'm saying this. Right. And I'm trying to picture what the hell was going through your parents' minds at this point in time, right? I mean, here they are talking about how much they miss you, uh, as any parent would, and now learning not only that, in fact, everything you've been saying all along was true that you were innocent, but that the actual perpetrator is sitting at the dinner table with them and it's your brother. Things start to progress from there. Right. Tell me how things start to move at that point, because a new hearing ultimately is held at which he's brought to the stand. Well, just to give you, I guess, an abbreviated um, step by step timeline there. So uh, after that um, evening, you know, my father and 
brother, sisters, eventually they came and saw me and, uh, and told me what occurred. And I, I said, okay, well, this is what we should do now. Eventually it led to affidavits uh, reciting his statements, the confession to stabbing the two individuals being included in a motion, what they call a, a 440 motion in New York, which is a what you do after direct appeal to get facts off the record in. And that was filed, and that resulted in a hearing. Following the hearing, my conviction was vacated, and a new trial was ordered based on the confession of my brother, as well as some other evidence which developed during the hearing. But wait a minute. Before we get to that, yeah, I'm at a loss to imagine what that meeting was like. Was it both of your parents that came to the prison to tell you this news? No, my dad, yeah. My mom was in Chicago at that time. So your dad comes to the prison and tells you that, in fact, your brother had admitted that it was it was he who had committed this crime for which you have now had eight years of your life stolen from you in the most terrible way. I mean, what was that like? Um... Well, different people will have different reactions uh, if they were in my position. But for me, I can tell you it was simply a feeling of relief. I just felt relieved. Because now you could see light at the end of the tunnel. Yes. Well, that's, that's logical. You didn't feel rage? It was relief for a while. The rage did come. I mean, I, 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 I did uh, throughout... The years that followed up, you know, possibly up until just a few years ago, I I don't talk to my brother right now for a variety of reasons. Obviously, you know, this, what happened here is one of them. But um, in the beginning, for at least a few months, it was just relief. It was just relief. You know, I was sitting there stuck in prison and, and I couldn't, I just couldn't figure out why I'm there or how I you know how the state could have so much power over an individual's liberty with with without without providing enough circuit breakers enough safety nets you know and I'm still there amazingly as as fate would have it on September 23rd 2008 which was your 33rd birthday right yeah you got the best birthday present you could imagine I definitely did you want to talk about that well I was upstate you know, where was I at this time? I think I was at a Sing Sing Correctional Facility, and they called me down to White Plains. And I walked out in front of the judge on September 23rd. And meanwhile, I had a retrial ordered by this time, but it was just a retrial. And I think the prosecutor stepped up and just said, we would not oppose defendant's ROR release right now. And I heard that, and I was just like, I don't know. I'm lucky I didn't lose consciousness at that time, just just hearing those words. So the judge uh, cut me loose, cut me loose right then in the courtroom. And I was in this state issued clothing and I and I'm still surrounded by these officers, you know, like a sergeant, you know, a couple muscle bound officers all surrounding me with handcuffs. And uh, and I couldn't believe it. So what happened? Did they take the handcuffs off right then and there? But then you had to still change. It wasn't like you walk out into the daylight wearing a correction uh, well, they, uh, uniform, right? They, they gave me what's called a court uniform, which is like, uh, I guess it's always tight jeans. They always give somebody two sizes too small. But so it was tight jeans, like from the 80s, you know? So wait a minute, but you're in the courtroom. I'm in, in the courtroom. But you were still dressed in the... State-issued clothing, yeah. At what point did you change into these two tight jeans? Oh, oh, uh, right before I got into court, they say, here's a, a beige sweatshirt and jeans. Here, you can put them on so you don't have to go in front of the judge in your prison greens. Okay. So at that moment, you almost collapse, right? But you didn't. And then did the courtroom break out? And that moment must be etched in your well, memory I, permanently. I mean, um, well, if you take it back about one minute before the judge said that, you have um, an officer sitting down on my right side, an officer sitting down on my left side, and an officer behind me. And as they walk you in, well, one guy, you know, who feels like he has like the hand of a of a gorilla strength, you know, it, always the case, has a hand on your shoulder, and they're walking you to the chair. Sit down here, look forward, don't turn to the right, don't turn to the left. 
And to be honest with you, they, they mean that. Don't turn your head to the right. Don't turn your head to the left. And I've seen people upstate or in the prison facilities, you know, if you turn your head, you, you get taken down. And it's not a pretty sight. You know, they don't just take you down. You, you get a beat down. So I'm sitting in this chair and then have officer, like, you can feel the breath on the back of your neck of these officers just waiting to take down a convicted violent felon for even moving your head to the right. And that was how it was until the judge said, ROR. And I, so I turned to my lawyer and I said, can I, can I stand up? Can I'm free to go? And he says, yes. And all, all the officers stand up and I get up and I say, your honor, I can leave. She says, yes, you can leave. And I turn to the officers and I say, I can go out those back doors. Yes, I had to ask the question, like, I must have just kept repeating it to every single officer there before I even felt the courage to take a step, because you got to understand, for 10 years, I had been under the gun, and if you make any move unauthorized in a situation like that, you are getting taken down, and oftentimes you end up in the hospital, and and there's no recourse for that, no. you know, you turn your head when they say you didn't turn your head you disrespect a direct order and uh you know the way the law works as far as prisoners is concerned apparently there you can get taken down and a knee in the back and you know a foot on the face i guess but you know the it was hard to believe and i and i and i i really couldn't believe it i i asked i think i just repeated so many times can i go out that door can i go out that door and i had to make sure because i felt i felt it was unreal it is it unreal. Was unreal. And we and were your parents and family in the courtroom. Yeah, they started crying. So I actually walked over back to them in the seat and I said, "Don't cry. This, you know, this is a beautiful moment. You should be happy." And so I tried to be strong for them, and I tried myself not to cry because, you know, I didn't want it to turn into one big weeping fest. And you know, I wanted I wanted to see some smiles on their face. You know, I care about them. I love them. And so we got up and left. And I left with my sisters, and they, they took me to, um, immediately they took me to the mall to get a pair of jeans. <laughs> that's, that's and, funny. you know, that was that was a, a very interesting moment as well because uh, they're picking out jeans for me, you know, because my style is 10 years outdated, and I'm trying these jeans on, and they're all tight, and I'm telling them, I, I think this is really tight on my, you know, my butt. And they're like, listen. It should be a lot tighter. We're letting you go with that. That's the style now. And so I was like, okay. And I tried them on. I walked out. And it took me a few weeks to realize that that was probably just ordinary jeans right there. As opposed to 1999 when everybody was wearing more loose stuff. And so I got used to it. Still going 10 years later. Witness the dawning of a new era in automotive luxury with a reveal unlike any other as Infinity presents a new chapter in luxury, the premiere of the all-new 2025 Infinity QX80. Join us March 20th live from the edge at Hudson Yards in New York City, featuring an unforgettable performance by Grammy and Academy Award-winning singer, songwriter, and composer, John Batiste. The all-new Infiniti QX80 is unlike any luxury SUV you've ever seen. Smart enough to anticipate your needs, even before you do. Every line, curve, and detail was thoughtfully crafted, so everything for every passenger feels just right. Don't miss it. Mark your calendars and be the first to see it March 20th at 7 p.m. Eastern, only on iHeartRadio's YouTube channel. Save the date at new-qx80.com. 2025 QX80 coming this summer. Hey, Sarah, I love that spring break vlog you posted on Zigazoo. OMG, you watched it? Yeah, it was edited so well. I think you're so talented. Social media interactions are only positive when you use Zigazoo. Zigazoo is the world's largest and safest social media network for kids. Your kids can upload their content and see what their friends are up to. With Zigazoo, they can create videos, enter to win prizes, and try out the latest dances and trends. There's no commenting, no text messaging, and everything is 100% human moderated. Plus, all community members are real, verified kids just like yours. There are no bots, trolls, or AI. Because Zigazoo is about one thing and one thing only 
And that is fun. Try out Zigazoo this spring break and let your kids share your vacation blogs and best edits with their friends safely. Download the Zigazoo app today. That's Z-I-G-A-Z-O-O. Martha Stewart, the original influencer. When I think about anything, I think about the way that she did it first. The media mogul. The six years ahead, she saw what was coming. The prisoner, the rise, the fall and the reinvention of an American icon. Once Martha paved the road, everybody else pretty much copied her. A CNN original series, The Many Lives of Martha Stewart, now streaming on Max. Hey guys, Rob Parker here to tell you the national sales event is on at your Toyota dealer. Making now the perfect time to get a great deal on a dependable new Toyota truck like the rugged half-ton Tundra. Workhorse by nature, powerhouse by design, the Tundra combines raw capability with premium comfort and advanced tech to fuel your wildest adventures. And with the available iForce Max hybrid powertrain, you can take electrifying horsepower further than ever before or check out the fully redesigned Tacoma delivering trail dominating power and captivating style the new Tacoma was born to make your off-roading dreams come true and with the new available tech this legendary truck is getting even better and when you buy a Toyota truck you buy Toyota dependability meaning your truck will hold its value long into the future so visit your local Toyota dealer and check out amazing national sales event deals when you visit buyatoyota.com Toyota, let's go places So you ultimately graduate college and go to law school, not just any law school NYU Law School So let me correct you on that one So I went to NYU undergrad and I graduated with honors For law school, I went to Benjamin N. Cardozo Law School, which is Yeshiva University's grad school You know, that's also the home of the Innocent Project course and that that's my that's my law school yeah so you went to nyu you went from community college pleasantville waiting tables maximum security prison unbelievable ordeal and saga to nyu one of the hardest schools in the world to get into and graduate with honors and then to cardozo law school which is the home of the innocence project which is again a top top law school and then you pass the bar which is, again, I mean, that's an incredible accomplishment for anyone, much less someone who, if your brain was, was spaghetti, nobody yeah, it would, was. it would be totally understandable. But you managed to find this extra gear, this focus, this determination, this drive, and accomplish these great things and pass the bar. And now you're in practice as a criminal defense attorney in New York. That is correct, yes. Incredible. Yes. It's an incredible, Thanks. incredible story. And you've won one lawsuit. Right? Correct. Already for yourself. For myself, yeah. Right. And now you're representing clients, including one whose story has kept me up at night since you told me about it. And really? I don't know if you're at liberty to talk about that case, but what's what's really nuts to me is that Keon now finds himself representing a case that is eerily similar to his own. That is true. Absolutely. I see a lot of things in common with my case there. It's part of the reason which drives me to help this man out. Are you able to talk about that? I know it's an ongoing case. Well, it's an ongoing case. I think the case you're talking about, I'm wearing a t-shirt right now, right? Is that it? Yes. So it's free, F-R-E-E, Darwin, just like it sounds, D-A-R-W-I-N, Roque, R-O-Q-U-E dot com. Yeah. And And, that has a little information about the case and what we're trying to do for, for Darwin. And so, I mean, this case, it seems like has a very eerie resemblance to your own, you know, with the difference being that in this case, someone was, it was a stabbing, but it was actually someone who was killed. And Darwin has been in prison even longer than you were and is still fighting for his freedom. Yeah, he's going on quite a long time now, but, you know, he's a strong individual. So hopefully he can get through this and the end result will be something equitable and and just for him at least to gain his freedom again. And it's an important part of your story too. So I want to talk about this because this is where it's so important that people like you exist and are able to spend the time and and devote the the brain power and the energy and the inspiration, draw on your own experience to help somebody who was wrongfully convicted and is now serving a terrible sentence in a terrible place. 
And this is a guy who was a young up-and-comer, right? Entrepreneur. Uh, entrepreneur. Right? Yeah. Running a pet store. Yes. Right? His own pet store at 24 years old. Yeah. I want to bring attention to his case and use your story to drive interest in Darwin's case and hopefully have him sitting here in your seat sometime soon. I, I, I would love nothing more to, than to see that. For the people listening, what can they do to help Darwin? To help Darwin? Well... You know, we have to hire a gang expert who's exclusive to New York and investigators. And all these things cost money. And when you go to overturn a wrongful conviction, it's like pushing a rock up a mountain. It requires so much effort because courts are really not receptive, generally. So it requires a lot of effort and a lot of money. So on the website, if someone would like to donate, it's right there. Uh, None of it will go to me. I don't charge an hourly fee. I'm, I'm working pro bono, and I will continue to do so until I see justice done in this case. But they can donate, and it will go toward uh, a forensic pathologist, a gang expert, other experts that are needed, possibly paperwork that I acquire from the, from the DA or police or litigation, you know, costs, court fees. It will all go toward that. So that's one way that they can help. And it will go a long way. So in a nutshell, uh, people, please go to freedarwinroke.com and see how you can get involved and help Keon in this remarkable effort that he's putting forth on behalf of this innocent man who finds himself in these strangely Twilight Zone-esque circumstances that you found yourself in uh, 20 years ago or so. Keon, we have a tradition here on wrongful conviction which is that I like to turn the mic over to you, the star of our show today, for any closing thoughts. Well, if folks are out there listening, obviously they expressed an interest in the criminal justice system or the injustice that's occurring within that system. If you feel to help out, there's always ways, and it doesn't always require giving money. Although every little bit does help as well uh, reach out to some folks and uh, if you know if you're really interested in in helping the movement because there's plenty of folks still in jail for things they did not do I think it's epidemic if not pandemic in this country you know something we're still trying to get a hold on uh, how many people actually get convicted of things they didn't do and it, I think it's I think it's much greater than than uh, your average person anticipates so don't be afraid to reach out. Maybe volunteer some time. Hey, it could be a good thing. You can donate to certain charities and uh, give it a shot. Might make you feel better. Don't forget to give us a fantastic review wherever you get your podcasts. It really helps. And I'm a proud donor to the Innocence Project, and I really hope you'll join me in supporting this very important cause and helping to prevent future wrongful convictions. Go to innocenceproject.org to learn how to donate and get involved. I'd like to thank our production team, Connor Hall and Kevin Wardis. The music in the show is by three-time Oscar-nominated composer, Jay Ralph. Be sure to follow us on Instagram at Wrongful Conviction and on Facebook at Wrongful Conviction Podcast. Wrongful Conviction with Jason Flom is a production of Lava for Good Podcast in association with Signal Company Number One. Infinity Presents, a new chapter in luxury. The premiere of the all-new 2025 Infinity QX80. Live March 20th from the Edge at Hudson Yards in New York City. Featuring a performance by John Batiste. The all-new 2025 Infiniti QX80 is an SUV designed to help every passenger feel just right. Be the first to see it March 20th at 7 p.m. Eastern, only on iHeartRadio's YouTube channel. Save the date at new-qx80.com. Don't miss it. 2025 QX80 coming this summer. Hey, Sarah, I love that spring break vlog you posted on Zigazoo. OMG, you watched it? Yeah, it was so cool. I think you're so talented. Social media is only positive with Zigazoo, the world's largest and safest social media network for kids. In Zigazoo, all community members are verified kids like yours, and all content is fully human-moderated. Try out Zigazoo this spring break. Download the Zigazoo app today. As someone who lives for politics, when a major scandal unfolds... It was shocking. I have to know, what were they thinking? 
backroom deals, huge amounts of money, CIA secrets, sets off a firestorm in Washington, affairs. No way this guy's got a mistress. Corruption. I knew I was a dead man. Warning it's even messier than you thought. United States of Scandal with Jake Tapper, Sunday at 9 on CNN. Billie Eilish and Phineas O'Connell, they're with us today on Crew Call. I'm your host, Anthony D'Alessandro. Billy's vocals, it was automatic art. You know, I had to like choose a more challenging route than just like, da, 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 da. You know what I'm saying? Like it could have been like easier. And a lot of people have asked me like, how did you choose to have it be so soft and like so simple? And what else was it going to like? That's what the song wanted. Thanks for listening to this episode of the Crew Call podcast on Deadline. 